Hello, I'm Alice, and together with my friend Jonathan, we created Queer Out Here, an audiozine that explores the outdoors from queer perspective. And you're listening to episode zero, in which Jonathan and me interview each other for almost an hour. This episode is quite different from what the following episodes will be, because for the following episodes to happen, we need your help. If you're queer and you enjoy the outdoors, we want to hear from you. Whether it be stories about your adventures, poems, interviews, sound art, or even field recordings. We want your voices in Queer Out Here. To send us your submissions and for more information, please visit our website at www.queerouthere.com That's www.queerouthere.com Submission for the first episode closed on the first full moon of January. So if you're listening to this episode when it was first aired, you still have just over a month to send us your pieces. One last note before this episode begins. In this interview, we discuss all things outdoors and queer, and some of that may be a trigger for you. So if you're not sure, please refer to the show notes and the transcript on the website at queerouthere.com. And now, for the episode. Please enjoy. Hi Alice, I've just crawled into a little den that somebody's made in the woods outside our new house. It's quite exciting to find this. Uh, It's a fairly uh, structurally sound looking piece of engineering so you never know I might come out here for a wild camp one night or at least come out for a, a cup of tea or a picnic. Anyway, I've been thinking about what to ask you for the first question for this little interview and somebody asked me a question this week that I thought that I'd um, relay to you instead. So they asked me, do you really think that there's any difference in the way that queer people experience the outdoors to the way that straight people experience the outdoors? Or I guess, you know, how uh, trans people versus cis people um, experience you know, being outside or being in nature or things like that. And um, my immediate reaction to them was just, well, you know, I guess we'll see when we get to the submission. But I thought it was a, it was an interesting question anyway. And I kind of went on to say, you know, there are some obvious things like, you know, homophobia in sporting clubs or issues around embodiment for trans people, um, you know, swimming or doing anything where the kind of the body is an important part and might come under scrutiny from other people or uh, different cultures and traveling and what kind of impact that might have on people's decisions about where to go but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think that perhaps you know the experience or the experiences of queer people might be different out outdoors to other people and um, just tell us a little bit about how um, your experience of being outside might have been affected or impacted by being queer. All right, now I'm going to crawl back out of this little den and head on out into the woods again. Hello, I'm currently sitting in my local park um, after having spent most of the day indoors and I thought I'd take the time to answer your question today. It's one I've been asking myself ever since we started working on Query Out Here. And it's a question to which I have some answers based on my personal experiences, but my experiences feel very limited. So I'm really looking forward to listening to the submissions as we get them and find out what people have made of this question, whether it's a question they think is irrelevant and being queer doesn't impact being in the outdoors, or on the contrary, if being queer does matter in the context of the outdoors. It's a question to which I really want to answer no. Being queer doesn't affect your experience of the outdoors, but that would be a lie, at least from my personal experiences. 
the main activities I do when I'm outdoors are walking and cycling and I don't feel that walking or cycling has a particular link with being queer and that when I'm outdoors the landscape and nature around me doesn't care whether I'm queer or not there's no opinion there no judgment being made but the outdoors is not devoid of people and to me that's when from my experiences I've had issues when I'm in the outdoors and I meet people um, being queer usually has no impact because it's not a question that is raised but every now and again people will spot the ring on my finger or have been spending more time with them and questions will start to arise around what I'm doing in life and if I'm living with anyone and etc and etc and then it's just sort of knowing the place that you're in and knowing if it's okay to share that information with people so normally I can judge it fairly accurately particularly when I'm in the UK because I share a common language and a common culture with people so I'm more confident whether or not to say that I'm a lesbian and that I have a partner and um, talk more about it if people want to but last year when I was cycling in Spain and Portugal it occurred to me that it could become a problem there was uh, one particular time when I was in a public toilet that was being built in a park and it was pouring down with rain and there was those three guys that told me to just come and take shelter there they didn't speak any English or French or Spanish they only spoke Portuguese and at that stage my Portuguese was still fairly limited so although I understood what they were saying I couldn't really reply and at one stage during the conversation one guy asked if I had a boyfriend and if I was married and there was a split second where I felt really uncomfortable because it hit me that I was in a closed space with three guys that could very easily overpower me and that the rain was pouring down very loudly and that the park was a bit isolated and that if I screamed and yelled and kicked there would most likely be no one around to hear me and I just thought if I tell them that I don't have a boyfriend but I have a girlfriend how would they react and if they reacted negatively what would I do, where could I go I could go to the police, but then how would the police react, how is the authority, and how is it perceived in the country as a whole? Those were questions I never really asked myself before going, because I didn't really think about it. It didn't come into play in my mind, I was just going to go cycling in Spain and Portugal, and being queer wasn't going to be an issue. But for that instance, in that toilet with those three guys, it did become an issue, And because I didn't have the answers to the questions that were going through my mind, I told them I had a boyfriend. And I felt uncomfortable with this lie because this is not who I am. And those guys were really, really nice and I was lying to them. So I did all I could to veer away from the topic as quickly as possible. But the questions remained with me afterwards. And then I became a bit more on my guard, I guess, to sort of avoid the topic so that I wouldn't have to lie again. And for me, this is mostly how being queer has impacted me in the outdoors, not so much in the outdoors themselves, but in the people I meet and the places where I can go. And there are some places in the world that where I would like to go to, but where being gay is a criminal offence. And although it wouldn't stop me going there, because once again the outdoors have nothing to do with being queer, it means that it's a place where I can go with my girlfriend and share it with her in a way that I would like to because we would have to behave in a certain way, we would have to be more on our guards, there would be a constant fear bringing a taint to the trip. So in that respect, I can't answer that being queer is the same as being straight when outdoors. That being said, there is another side to the coin because being queer where you live might not be easy. Being queer might be something that you have to hide and the outdoors can be a very liberating place. In that they're a very non-judgmental place. If there's no people about and you're on your own and you're just having a walk or cycling or kayaking or climbing or 
anything you might want to do in the outdoors, nature couldn't care less what you are. The risks that are involved are just the same if you're queer, if you're straight. And the benefits that you can get are the same as well. So I can see the outdoors as a place where you can escape, where you can be more yourself and where you can be more at ease as well. But then there's also what you briefly talked about with some activities where homophobia is quite high and where the body is particularly exposed and where that could become an issue or maybe a barrier for some trans people. But on those examples, I don't have any personal experiences or stories from friends. So this is just speculation. So yeah, that's um, my answer to your question. And I hope it makes some kind of sense. But in short, I think that, yes, being queer um, does impact how you experience the outdoors compared to straight people. Whether it's a small thing or a big thing, I think depends on each person's experience. And I'm really looking forward to hear what other people have to say in their submissions on the topic. And it may be that nobody answers the question and will be left wondering but then that's not necessarily a bad thing. My question to you is on a completely different topic, and it has more to do with creativity and the outdoors, in that I'm wondering how much of your creativity is impacted by the time you spend outdoors and what you do outdoors. Is there a correlation between your inspiration and the outdoors, or if there are none at all, would you still be as creative and has inspired without going outdoors. I love the sound of all this bird song. I'm sitting outside a church beside a river in Kent, in the UK's, I think it's the UK's smallest town, or at least England's smallest town. We've been champing overnight, which is camping in a church, and I'm just waiting for the others to wake up and get up, and I thought I'd take this time to answer your question. But before I did that, I wanted to say thank you for your considered and um, comprehensive response. I, th- I was quite interested to hear you speaking to that tension between not wanting being queer to be an issue in the outdoors and the non-judgment of nature and also that recognition that when other people get involved things become more complicated and I thought in the example that you gave for me anyway listening to it it was clear that it's not just queerness that has an impact on these interactions but gender culture and language and i do hope we get some submissions that talk to the intersections of being queer and things like race and disability class or poverty body size mental health culture i'm just going to wait for that airplane to go over and i'll come back right so In the process of waiting for that uh, aeroplane to go over, my voice recorder ran out of batteries. So now I am recording the rest of this on an iPhone. And I was saying that I hope that we get some submissions that talk to the intersections of identity. Um, And I was also gonna say that I hope we get some submissions that talk about the positive aspects of being queer in the outdoors as well because there are positive aspects and um, for me that mainly involves I guess the social nature of being queer in the outdoors so for example I currently belong to an LGBT walking group in East Sussex in the UK and I was also thinking about the queer and trans picnics that I'd been on in Melbourne picnics and festivals and they are experiences that were a lot of fun and they are experiences that I would not have had if I wasn't queer. And so on to your question which was how is my creativity uh, influenced by being outdoors? Well I found this quite a tricky question. I think there are kind of three elements to it. So one is you know do 
the things that I observe outdoors make it into my creative pieces. Secondly, does being outside influence my creative process? And third, do I approach being outside in a creative way? When I think of my creative output over the last few years, and I'm thinking mainly of things that have an audience beyond just me and maybe one or two people that I get to read over them or whatever. So I'm thinking about the photos and videos and sound pieces that I've put on my blog or I've shared with you online and also my illustrations for the 30 Days Wild campaign from the Wildlife Trusts in 2016. And almost all of those have been directly influenced by nature, by being outdoors. So that's either documenting what I see or what I hear or finding inspiration there and also I guess the stuff that I haven't shared that widely like uh, stories and poems in those I think landscape does play a really important role because to me I think the landscape or the location is just as important or sometimes more important than the characters and that's probably why I don't get published because my characterization of humans is rubbish I also think that perhaps I approach being outside in a kind of creative or abstract way. And what I mean by that is not just seeing the views as fodder for the camera or you know, hearing the audio as something that I can record, but kind of uh, walking as a creative process. So I did a little project several years ago now called Walking Out of the City which you know on the surface of it was just a walk from one of the inner suburbs of Melbourne to out beyond one of the outer suburbs but as part of that I spent a lot of time reflecting on what a city is, what the signifiers are of cities and suburbs, the history and meaning of place, where borders were, what kind of borderlands and liminal spaces exist uh, within a city. So that's kind of walking as research but also the walk is the product of research and reporting on the walk being the kind of creative or research output from that. One of the artists who I really, really like is Richard Long, who has these amazing artworks where the concept, the act and the documenting of a walk are all kind of creative. So he has these text pieces that are... Um, and I'm paraphrasing here, things like uh, a day's walk following the drift of clouds or walking from a full moon to a new moon or all these walks that are kind of based on prime numbers or mathematical concepts. And I, I really love this stuff, this kind of way of being... Oh my goodness, I just saw a kingfisher fly past. That's very cool. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Richard Long, you should uh, look him up if you haven't before. And finally, I think you asked, would I be as creative without spending time outdoors? And that kind of relates to whether being outside is part of my creative process. And I mean, I guess it is in that if I get stuck inside for too long, I don't really feel like doing anything, including creating anything. But I, I really don't know how to, what the answer to that is. I, who knows whether or not it would make a difference. So. You know, getting outside is good for processing and finding ideas, and I'm sure that I would create different stuff if I wasn't spending time outside. But then again, I might have more time to actually create things if I wasn't off uh, gallivanting around the countryside at every opportunity. I'd be interested to hear a bit from you as well on that question. So my question for you kind of relates to your question for me, and that's a little bit about creativity. And I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about field recording as a format, as a craft or art or a practice, because it's something that you are really involved in and you've just put out a, an album of field recordings. But I think of all the formats that we've mentioned in our call for submissions, it's possibly the thing that people will be least familiar with. So quite a, a broad question. You can take it in whichever way you'd like, but... I guess primarily I'd like to know what do you love about creating and listening to field recordings and why? I'm in my local nature reserve and I uh, 
came in with my longboard. It's been a while since I've been able to use it, so it was nice to uh, take it for a little trip. Well, thanks for answering my question. It was uh, really interesting to hear your answer and how the last few years your creative output has really been sort of based on your outdoor time, but also how, how your outdoor time, in a sense, restrict your creative time by the mere fact that you're doing something else. And I thought it was quite interesting because for me, my creativity really is fueled by my time outdoors. So when I'm outside, even though I'm not necessarily creating, I'm gathering material for creation at a later time, be it by doing field recordings or just having a walk that I'll write up about later or taking some photos or anything. My outdoor time is, um, is essential for all of that to happen. So it's like the first stage of my creativity and it also helped me be more present and more aware of what's going on around me. Because usually I know if I'm gonna use a walk or a cycle, if I'm gonna use it for something else later on, and it forces me to pay more attention to my surroundings, what I'm doing, what's going on. Well, when I know that I won't be using my experiences, I'm not always as focused or as present. So I'm now going to uh, walk on for a little bit and find a little spot to uh, sit and uh, answer the question about field recording in a little more depth. So, field recording. Well, I first began my journey into sound a couple of years ago when I started recording sounds rather than photos on holiday. And the reason was my camera battery died and I only had a recorder with me to keep a trace of my holiday. So I recorded sound and when I came back home, those sounds were a lot more evocative than the photos were. And on top of that, I felt that I could Google the places that I'd been and I'd find photos or I'd use Google Street and I'd find back the same imagery than the one I took. While the sound, I couldn't find them and they were very specific to a time and place and even to my position in that uh, place. So then I began recording sounds after that on a lot more regular basis and that memory aspect, that evocative aspect of field recording was and still is a part of what attracts me the most about the practice because sound has a power that an image or words don't really have, I find. There's something really universal about sound in that it's a language everybody can understand. It also, to me, has a little more truth to it is more able to capture an atmosphere of a place, a sense of a place. While a photo can do it to some extent, a photo is always a lot more subjective than a field recording. I mean, field recording is not an objective practice at all. I mean, the choice of gear, the choice of when to press record and when to stop, the choice of where to stand, and then the post-production make it a subjective practice. But I feel there's a little more truth to it. One example that I use a lot is Richmond Park in London in the UK. It's a park in the southwest of London and is very popular with tourists and locals because it's a big, wide, open space and there's deers in it. And it's a great park and I do really like it. But when I see photos of it or read stories about it, Nobody ever mentions that there's two massive roads going through it, so a lot of cars and an airplane going over it every two minutes. And I feel that something's not quite true about those accounts and those photos if you omit that. Because what stopped me from loving Richmond Park is all the noise in it. If I go to a park in a city or an open space, I want to escape that more urban noise. I want 
to find birds and quiet and just lie down and hear the wind through the leaves, not the motors of cars or planes. In that sense, I feel that field recording is a little more truthful and a little more evocative than a photo or words. Another point that I really like about field recordings is its archival capacity because this is something we haven't been able to do for a very long time. We've had words and we had visual means of painting, photography, drawings, all of that, film even. But sound is really new. We don't know what the Middle Ages sounded like. We can guess. Uh, We can reconstruct from the visuals and from the text that we have. But it's only a guess. But nowadays... We can keep a record of what we sound like and what the world around us sound like. Because animal species are dying and if we record their cry, we have a trace of it. Otherwise we'll, we'll never know or future generations will never know. And that feels important as well. I mean, it's a side of field recordings that I haven't explored a lot. But I do have a few recordings of temporary places that are gone. And I feel like this may be the only record of how the space sounded like. That does feel important, even though I haven't explored that side of it a lot. And my work is a lot more of an archive of me, an archive of my experiences, rather than an archive for the world. But field recordings definitely has as that capacity and is definitely used by some people in that respect in trying to make an objective recording of a place. And another thing I use field recording for is to make people more aware of the sounds around them. Ever since I started exploring field recordings and the world in terms of sounds, I've become a lot more aware of how noisy a society we are. We're so noisy that some birds have had to become louder to still hear each other, that some marine life have had to change their songs, to change their song, to still be able to hear one another. And that seems very drastic and very wrong for some things that we can change. We can make boats quieter, we can make cars quieter, we can live a quieter life in general, but we choose not to because most of us don't hear the world around us anymore. At least not what we would consider noise or background noise. And so I also use field recordings to help raise awareness of that. I mean, I'm not going to change the world, I know that. But I'm hoping that by talking about it to people that I can gradually help the people around me realize how noisy they can be and how easily they can stop that noise. I'm not sure if that answers your question of why field recordings, but I hope it does and that it makes some kind of sense. And that maybe will make some people a little more curious about what it is and maybe we'll get some field recording submissions. That'll be, uh, that'll be great. Um, now, there was also another part to your question, which was listening to field recordings. And to me, is really linked to why I press record. As mentioned, for me, it's a lot more evocative than a photo, so it transports me to a place a lot more than a photo or a text does. I close my eyes and I can be there, wherever there is. So that's one big part of why I listen to field recordings, is to be transported somewhere else and to discover other places and to travel without having to take the plane and add a lot of noise pollution and a lot of CO2 pollution into the world. But it's also a kind of music. I almost exclusively listen to field recordings. I don't listen to a lot of music. Music is a language I've always struggled with, a language I was never taught, and a language that does not come naturally to me. I'm getting better at it, but it's still quite a struggle. Where field recordings is a lot more accessible because it's sounds that I recognize or sounds that I can associate with something, and it's a sound that I know comes from something on this planet. And I find that easier to process than music. That being said, field recordings can be used in music and are used in music. 
but they are also using compositions of field recordings to create what would be called, I guess, sound art, although I would call it music. So, for example, I'm currently working on an album about the cycle journey I took last year in Spain and Portugal, and I'm using the field recordings that I did to transmit the story of the journey. If I want to transmit the fact that I was struggling and I was sad and I was scared and I was a little bit lost, I'm using sound of the wind and the rain and the roaring of the waves because those sounds make you feel a little more trapped, a little more in despair, rather than cricket sounds and bird songs that are much more relaxing. So yes, yeah, so that's that's why I listen to field recordings a lot. It's that being transported somewhere else and, and to me it's music. So I guess the reasons people listen to music can be applied to why you would listen to a field recording. And I would really encourage people to just give it a try and see if they like it, see if they can get something out of it as well and maybe become more aware of uh, our world in, in terms of sound, sort of add a layer of experience to their time on this world. But enough on that, and it's my turn to ask you another question. And my question for you is still related to the outdoors. I would like to know if there are places that you are drawn to, like some people keep going back to mountains or some people just want to be in the sea or just want to swim. I'm just wondering if there is something like that for you, if there is a space outdoors that you find yourself going back to again and again or if not going back to wanting to go back to again and again or if you don't have any preferences as to where you go outdoors but if you do have preferences if you can maybe explain why which I know can be really difficult because there's not necessarily always a rational reason why it's just sometimes it's just an impulse something that we just feel but if if you can and if you have it'd be nice to know why So speaking of the noisy environment, as you can probably tell, I'm not in some secluded rural area now. I am in a garden in North London, drinking gin and tonic green tea, which is delicious. Uh, But anyway, apologies in advance, there will be cars going past and aeroplanes going overhead and I will not be pausing the recording this time to let them go past. But there there you go, that is um, the, the truthfulness of this particular recording in this particular place Um, and I did like that idea of truthfulness that you talked about the comparison that you made between uh, field photography and field recording and I can see where you're coming from it is a lot easier to manipulate what's in the frame of a photograph in production and in post-production and it is more difficult to do that with a field recording I mean I guess it's not impossible with the right gear and skills to be more specific about what you record or to edit it in a particular way but I think it is harder and I guess as a result of that and because listening to field recording demands your time I can definitely see how listening to and creating field recordings can be a more immersive and evocative experience for people than producing and looking at photographs And I think that immersion is part of what I love about field recordings. There's something really intimate about it, or there can be. I like to think that I'm listening to something just as the person recording it listened to it. So in a way, I'm inhabiting their space. And that's especially true when I think, oh, you know, if somebody was wearing headphones and I'm wearing headphones, it's a very physical connection. It could be quite kind of personal and intense and it's different to the closeness that you get with images or with written text and I guess the extreme of that with audio is things like um or things like um ASMR and binaural recordings but even just 
straight recording of maybe somebody walking down a street or through a market. There can be something kind of voyeuristic in a way about hearing the world through somebody else's ears. So on to your question about um, outdoor spaces and places that I am drawn to. I mean, I could go on for ages about this, but I will try to keep it short and sweet and give you the abridged version. There are a few kind of themes, I guess. The first are spaces that I don't go out deliberately to try to find. And in fact, I don't think you can necessarily go out to try to find them because they're slightly secret or unexpected spaces. And they're often very human sized as well. So little footpaths or twittens, which are quite small alleyways. That's what they call them in Sussex. Laneways and little alcoves and uh, secret corners and overgrown garden pathways and benches tucked into hillsides or, you know, that space of being underneath a tree where the branches go right down and, and the leaves touch the ground all the way around you, that kind of green enclosed magic, or the like spaces like that, like um, hushed hollowways and green lanes, or also just pockets of space that don't really seem to fit the pattern, they're kind of opportunistic places where you might be trespassing or where you are definitely trespassing but there's some kind of plausible deniability about it and I think all of those spaces or places kind of relate precisely on a precise scale to the human body because often it's that um, like repeated almost mundane manual actions of of the human body that bring those spaces into existence like years of repeated um, walking that wear down a path and make it into a hallway. And so, like I said, they're not necessarily places that I deliberately seek out, but when I do come across them, I am really drawn to explore them. And I think that's maybe partly what I like about wild camping as well, the, the smallness of the bivy bag and the tarp and um, creating my own little secret burrow or den in the corner of a field or something like that. Another kind of space that I like and, and I'm drawn to it is rivers and creeks so flowing fresh water. Um, I grew up beside the Snowy River in Australia and I lived beside the Merry Creek um, and also did a lot of walking alongside the Yarra River in Melbourne. I didn't really like living in London but the main places I did like about that physically were kind of beside the Thames or along the canals or along the like the Dollis Valley Green Walk in North London you know, I guess natural water generally. I like swimming in rivers, but also in lakes and the sea. I guess I'm very self-conscious, which is one of the reasons I don't go to swimming pools. I mean, the other one is also I just really don't like all that chlorine. But yeah, outdoor watery spaces. It's not just swimming, I like kayaking and canoeing. Jeepers, that was loud. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, kayaking and canoeing uh, or like walking along towpaths and boating and looking at bridges and admiring waterfalls but I think mostly with water what I like to do is just muck around in the shallows so I think of you know paddling along a beach or wading across a river or a creek while I'm on a walk or taking off my shoes and socks and dangling my feet in the water during a lunch break on a long walk or if we're camping kind of dunking my head in the creek to wake up in the morning. Dan and I have a bit of a running joke that whenever we see some water I always say to him, go for a swim? And <laughs> like the grossier the bit of water is the better. But I guess with rivers specifically I, I also like the kind of concept of them. I like um, the way that they forge a completely different kind of path through the landscape. So not at all like like human ways, a, a different sort of highway for fish and wildlife and for sound that echoes down the valley and also, you know, for, for humans, for boats and swimmers, different ways of moving through a landscape. And rivers, rivers can kind of wind through such different landscapes as well. And it sometimes feels like the only thing that connects those different places is the fact that the same river runs through them all. So that's rivers and secrety kind of spaces. But really the first thing that sprang to mind when I heard your question was views. When I think of places that make my heart sing, 
they're usually places with wonderful views. So one of my favourites is the view over the Wye Valley from Gospel Pass in Wales. If you go up there in the car and then you park it, you can climb up to Hay Bluff. And I remember doing that once with Dan and we uh, watched the sunset and it was just so beautiful. It's just like thinking about it, about it makes me ache to be there again. And I've experienced a similar kind of feeling like up on the South Downs, looking out over the levels on a sunny day or halfway up a mountain in Switzerland in Heidi country with the goat bells and cowbells and the wildflowers all around or on a fire trail up in the hills above the Snowy River in some quite kind of remote and rugged country and I remember that feeling of as you climb up this really steep broken kind of gravel road fire trail um, and you climb higher and higher and it's so steep you have to stop a lot to uh, catch your breath but that is a good reason to turn around and look at the view but as you climb up you kind of get higher than one hill and then you get higher than the next and this landscape just rolls out around you and in front of you and the horizon kind of unfurls into this huge almost rippling sea of hazy blue forested hills so yeah those kinds of views are things that just take my breath away Although it doesn't follow that I love mountains because I'm not a climber and I don't do very well with heights. But there is something about hills and the views from hills, I guess. Um, I do like that bit of exertion to precede the wonderful view because I think it just makes the experience a little bit sharper and a little bit sweeter. When we were up in the hills above the Snowy River, that day, Dan and I kind of talked about that feeling and he asked me how I felt looking out over that country because to him, he said he sees it and he thinks, oh, that's a nice view. I don't think it affects him the way that it affects me. I don't really know how to articulate that feeling. There's just something kind of uplifting or expansive or kind of awesome in the older sense of the word. And I guess you know if you want to be kind of philosophical about it it involves elements of the sublime that idea of you are such a small person and the world is so vast and it's vast spatially and it's vast in terms of time and it's vast in terms of just the amount of life that is within your views so you know not just people or animals but insects and all the different kinds of trees and all the different kind of geological life if you can call it that that's gone into creating the country that you're on and I think that's quite amazing and I suppose finally the other thing that I'm drawn to is the sky which is accessible from almost anywhere if you just look up what do I like about the sky? I like the clouds. I love clouds. I love cloud formations. Um, there's a great book called The Cloud Spotter's Guide, which helped me learn a little bit more about what kind of clouds there were and what they might mean in terms of weather patterns. And one of my favourite things about flying as well is just sailing past those lumpy towers and mountains of cumulus clouds or breaking through the different layers and looking out the window and seeing this amazing kind of fantasy landscape that clouds have created below the plane. And I also love the night sky, so stargazing, like spotting satellites and meteors, you know, staring at the moon and looking at all the craters. And especially on a clear night when you're somewhere without too much light pollution, it's absolutely awesome, I love it. <laughs> so I grew up in the bush in Australia and it's very rare to see a night sky like that over here you know, where the Milky Way really does live up to its name. It's just this milky kind of translucent splash that stretches right across the sky. And, you know, many a night wild camping, I've been too distracted by the stars to fall asleep properly. In conclusion, there are a few kinds of places or spaces and outdoor things that I feel drawn to, from the very small human scale up to the literally to the infinite, to the universe. Right, so I did say that I would try to keep this short and sweet and I do not think I've been very successful, but hopefully there's uh, something of interest for you in there. 
if you'd like to tell me a bit about what draws you to certain places I would be interested to hear that but I think for now this concludes at least my part of the interview and I just wanted to say thanks very much for taking the time to answer my questions it's been really fun talking to you this way and thank you to the listener for listening that was uh, my attempt at some Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> See you later. Bye. I'm in the closest bit of outdoor space I have from my home, and that's my garden. I haven't gone far today to record the last bit of our interview, because sometimes you don't need to go far to spend time outdoors. A back garden, a local park, can do wonders. And so I'm here. It's getting late and it's dark outside. I can guess at where the moon is in the sky because I can see a bright spot in the clouds. But otherwise it's very overcast. There's no stars other than the occasional flashing light for an airplane. And it feels a bit weird to and this interview, I've really enjoyed our back and forth. And I kind of want to just go on. But at one point, we have to end this and close the interview. But before I do, I thought I'd share some of my thoughts about your last answer. I can really relate to rivers. I have a strange attraction to water in that I both love it and absolutely fear it. There's something unknown about it that attracts me. The idea of traveling by boats or swimming and seeing places that are only accessible and only visible from the water's edge. Because rivers go where footpaths don't always go. And so there's landscape and views that I'll never know. And yet there's a most natural path that we have in the countryside. They've always been there. And that attracts me as well, the idea that they've always been there and that there are centuries of history along their banks and on their water. But at the same time, as I was mentioning, I fear water because it's not an element that I should be in. It doesn't feel right. It's not an element that I feel as humans we've mastered. It's an element that tolerates us but can overturn us and kill us if it chooses to. And so in that respect, I'm really, really afraid of water and have a deep respect for it. And I sort of always put off a boat trip because I'm quite scared of it, really. So I just walk along rivers and I feel safer. But one day, one day I'll get over it and have a proper boat trip. One of the other things that you mentioned, and that is views and the feelings that you get from them, I thought that was really interesting because I could relate to what you were saying but not necessarily about views I feel it's not views that give me that kind of feelings but places and moments in time so I remember particularly a trip a few years ago that I did in Kent where I was just cycling about and I'd reached Whistable and the seaside and that had been a vague destination but it also been something that I'd heard about for a long time when I first read Sarah Waters and, and the Whistable was the place of origin of one of the characters in Tipping the Velvet. And so that place had etched itself into my mind from years and years ago and reaching it, even though I knew it was completely different, felt like a milestone of sort, like placing a name on the map and being finally able to see it and maybe to gain some more understanding for a character and a book that adds some importance to me at one stage in my life. I tend to seek out places that are full of stories and all places are full of stories of one kind or another but I mean stories that are meaningful to me, stories that I know, stories that I've seeked out or stories that I can just see as I see the landscape. So for example, when I was cycling in the Orkney Islands a few years back, I was traveling with a book 
of myth and legends from those very islands. And that's added a very visceral dimension to the landscape because all I was seeing, I could certainly interpret in the eyes of the people that first lived there and created those legends. A hill wasn't just a hill and a stone circle wasn't just a stone circle and a lake wasn't just a lake. There were stories behind them, there were meanings behind them, there were giants throwing earth, there were giants splitting waters, there were fairies going about, there were people going missing, there were people falling in love, there were people tricking other people and marking the landscape and turning it into what it now is. But in the same instance, it doesn't always have to be about legends and myth. It can be about history. Like I'm currently trying to make my way along a first dike path whenever I have a day off that allows me to travel that way. And there's a lot of history along that border and that, that is definitely one of the reasons why I'm attracted to, to this particular walk. I'm not necessarily drawn to particular places like a mountain or the seaside or stuff like that. I'm more drawn to stories and histories that have shaped a place and that has a meaning to me. And I think I'll stop here because it's time to close the interview. So thank you, Jonathan, first of all, for taking the time to answer the question and ask questions that were both meaningful and thought-provoking. And thank you to you, the listener, whoever you may be, right at this moment and wherever you may be. I hope that you found this interview interesting and that it provoked some reactions and maybe some thoughts and ideas for a submission. And if it did and you do want to send us something, you just need to head to queerouthere.com so that's queerouthere.com, Q-U-E-E-R-O-U-T-H-E-R-E dot com. And we look forward to hearing from you.